Part forty six of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part forty six Archibald Hamilton Rowan, Esquire, convicted of publishing a seditious libel. Although we do not consider the numerous instances of conviction for the publication of seditious libels, which took place in Dublin about this time, as being strictly within the plan of our work, yet the extraordinary and romantic circumstances attending the escape of Mr. Rowan induce us to give his case insertion. The agitation produced both in England and Ireland, immediately after the French Revolution, in which many persons sought to excite the people to follow the example of their Gallic neighbours, produced a number of prosecutions, the recital of which alone would be sufficient to fill our volume. Among other convictions which took place was that of Mr. Archibald Hamilton Rowan, who was found guilty in the Court of King's Bench, Dublin, on the 29th of January, 1794, of publishing in the year 1792 a false, scandalous, and malicious libel against the government, purporting to be an address from a society called the United Irishmen of Dublin to the Volunteers of Ireland, and signed by Mr. Rowan as their secretary, an offence for which he was sentenced to be imprisoned for two years, to pay a fine of £500, and to find security in the amount of £4,000 for his good behaviour for seven years. It appears that after about two or three months of the term of imprisonment had expired, William Jackson, a divine of some notoriety in England, and several others, were arrested on a charge of high treason, in which it appeared probable that Rowan would be implicated. He therefore determined on effecting his escape, and the manner in which he accomplished it had been thus narrated. Having discovered, on the 28th of April, 1794, the extent of the danger in which he was involved, he arranged a plan of flight, to be put into execution, on the night of the 1st of May. He had the address to prevail on the jailer of Newgate, who knew nothing farther of his prisoner than that he was under sentence of confinement for a political libel, to accompany him at night to his own house. They were received by Mrs. Rowan, who had a supper prepared in the front room of the second floor. The supper over, the prisoner requested the jailer's permission to say a word or two in private to his wife in the adjoining room. The latter consented, on condition of the door between the two rooms remaining open, and he had so little suspicion of what was meditated, that instead of examining the state of the other room, he contented himself with shifting his chair at the supper-table so as to give him a view of the open doorway. In a few seconds his prisoner was beyond his reach, having descended by a single rope, which had been slung from the window of the back chamber, into the street. In his stable he found a horse ready saddled, and a peasant's outside coat to disguise him, and with these he posted to the house of Mr. Matthew Dowling, his attorney, who was aware of his design, and was under an engagement to aid him, both by his advice and personal assistance. On his arrival at the attorney's house he found it full of company, but the host coming to him pointed out the imprudence of his giving him shelter, and directed him to wait for him at the Rotunda, a building in Sackville Street, where he would join him as soon as he could dispose of his guests. For an hour and a half, tormented by hopes and fears, did the fugitive await the coming of his friend, but Irish gentlemen in those days, as well as in modern times, were not the men to quit their bottle, 
and it was not until the expiration of that time that Mr. Dowling made his appearance. He at length arrived, however, and after a short and anxious conference, it was determined that it was best for Mr. Rowan to proceed at once to the house of a friend, a Mr. Sweetman, about four miles off, at the north of the Bay of Dublin, whence it was anticipated he might in a day or two make his escape by boat. He accordingly proceeded thither with all possible speed, but three days elapsed before the design could be carried out. Mr. Sweetman's pleasure-boat was then manned by some fellows who lived on the spot, and who undertook to convey their passenger to the coast of France. They put to sea at night, but a gale of wind coming on, they were compelled to put back, and take shelter under the hill of Howth. They lay there at anchor until the following morning, and they were then again about to proceed on their voyage, when a small revenue cruiser sailing by threw into the boat copies of a proclamation, which had issued offering a reward of two thousand pounds for the apprehension of the fugitive. The bills were read, but no remark made, and in the bustle attending the getting the little vessel under way, no further notice was taken of them. When they had reached the mid-channel, however, a second inspection of them took place, and the unfortunate exile beheld the brows of his crew contracted as they looked from the printed papers to him, apparently engaged in comparing the description which was given of the fugitive with his person. He knew the generous character of the Irish peasantry. He was himself an Irishman, he knew the loyalty and devotion of their hearts to persons in distress, and he could calculate upon receiving from them as strangers that aid which they would not have more readily given to their own brothers. His course was immediately determined upon. He admitted that their conjectures were right, that he was the runaway, Hamilton Rowan. But he added, "'You are Irishmen!' The answer which he received was characteristic of their country. They gave a cheer, threw the proclamation overboard, and set about hastening their passage to the place of their destination. On the third morning, a little after daybreak, they arrived in sight of St. Paul de Leon, a fortified town on the coast of Bretagne and as the sun rose, a thick mist which had hovered over them was dissipated, and they discovered about two miles astern the British Channel Fleet, moving along under easy sail, through which their little vessel had passed unperceived. The party soon effected a landing, and, being seen, were seized and conducted to prison as suspected spies. But in a few days their real character being explained, an order from the French government procured for their liberation, and the honest crew returned to Dublin with their boat, while Mr. Rowan proceeded at once to Paris. In a political convulsion which subsequently occurred in that city, it was his fate once more to effect his escape in a wherry down the Seine, in which he was unaccompanied by any person, and although the banks of that river were lined with military, he answered their challenges with so much address that he was permitted to pass unmolested. Having reached a French port, he embarked for the United States of America and there, unaffected by the political changes of his own country, he continued to live for several years. At length the merits of his personal character prevailed against the remembrance of his political aberrations, and an act of royal clemency, generously conceded without any humiliating conditions, restored him once more to his country, where he continued to reside in the bosom of domestic quiet, and in the habitual exercise of every virtue. He had the satisfaction, too, in his old age, of finding that, in a public point of view, his debt of gratitude to the Crown had not been wholly unpaid. In his eldest son, Captain Hamilton, of the Cambrian frigate, 
he gave to the British Navy one of its most gallant and distinguished commanders. William Butterworth and Francis Jennison Executed for Murder the case of these wretched culprits is so disgusting in its details that we feel justified in giving it only as short a form as possible. At the Hants Assizes, in the beginning of August 1794, William Butterworth and Francis Jennison, two convicts at Cumberland Fort, were tried before Mr. Justice Gross and Mr. Baron Thompson for the murder of Mr. John Groundwater, one of the persons deputed to look after them. The circumstances of this murder were of the most brutal and atrocious nature. These hardened wretches, on being reprimanded by Mr. Groundwater, who threatened to report them for ill behaviour, swore that they would rip his bowels out, and they were heard by another of the convicts debating about the manner of perpetrating the murder. In accordance with a resolution which they arrived at, about six in the evening of the same day, they fell upon him with two iron shovels, with which they had been at work in spreading gravel, and with which they gave him three such wounds on the skull that his brains fell out in the quantity of a double handful. They then struck down one of the shovels upon his neck, with intent to sever the head from the body, but striking against the bone it had not the intended effect. The rest of the convicts ran to the spot, and one of them caught hold of Butterworth to prevent his mangling the body any more, but after a struggle he disengaged himself, ran back to the unfortunate sufferer, and catching up the spade again gave him several cuts, saying, "'There, damn him!' I have done him out and out. On being remonstrated with for his inhuman conduct, he replied that he was transported for life, and he would rather be hanged than suffer that sentence. It is a most extraordinary circumstance, established on the evidence of Mr. Hill, surgeon, who attended him, that Mr. Groundwater lived eighteen hours after he had received these grievous wounds, notwithstanding the brains had fallen out, and a prodigious effusion of blood had taken place. He never spoke after the second blow was given him, but the action of the pulse was strong, and respiration continued during the whole of the eighteen hours above mentioned. Butterworth, though thus steeled in cruelty, was only nineteen years old, his wretched companion was twenty-five. The publicity of the deed, and the consequent clear evidence of their guilt, would not admit of their setting up any defence. The jury pronounced them guilty, and they were sentenced to be executed in three days, after, in Lanston Harbour, and their bodies were ordered to be hung in chains in Cumberland Fort. They were taken from jail at about four o'clock on Monday morning, and reached Portsea about eleven. The number of spectators who crowded to see the execution was immense. Both the prisoners acknowledged that they alone were the persons who committed the murder, exculpating all the other convicts from a participation in this horrid offence. Their behaviour was very penitent, and they seemed to feel sensibly the enormity of their crime. The execution took place about twelve o'clock, and their bodies were afterwards hung in chains, pursuant to the sentence, near the spot where the murder was committed. Both prisoners, it appears, had been convicted of burglary, for which they were sentenced to death, but had been reprieved on condition of their being transported for life. They had been at the hulks only about seven days, when they committed the murder for which they were executed. Anne Broderick indicted for murder. The case of this unfortunate young woman excited at the time of its occurrence nearly universal pity. It appeared that Mr. Errington, the object of her attack, was a gentleman of large landed and personal property, residing at Grays in Essex, 
and his name had become well known from the circumstance of his having been divorced from his wife a few years before the melancholy event which we are about to relate. About three years after the termination of the proceedings in the ecclesiastical courts, he became acquainted with Miss Broderick, who was a young lady possessed of considerable accomplishments, of a fine figure, and in personal charms superior to the generality of her sex. Miss Broderick before this had lived with a Captain Robinson, but it appears that, being addressed by Mr. Errington with great solicitude, she consented to reside with him in the character of his wife. A mutual attachment sprung up in the course of their connection, but after a lapse of three years during which they lived together with every appearance of domestic felicity, Mr. Errington bestowed his affections and his hand on a lady of respectability in the neighbourhood, acquainting Miss Broderick that he could see her no more. On her quitting him he made what he conceived to be a suitable provision for her future wants, and she retired apparently deeply grieved at the unfortunate change which had taken place in the feelings of her late protector. On the 11th of September, 1794, she wrote a letter to him in the following terms. Dear Errington, that you have betrayed and abandoned the most tender and affectionate heart that ever warmed a human bosom cannot be denied by any person who is in the least acquainted with me. Wretched and miserable as I have been since you left me, there is still a method remaining that would suspend for a time the melancholy sufferings and distress which I labour under at this moment, and still, inhuman as thou art, I am half persuaded when I tell you the power is in your hands that you will not withhold it from me. What I allude to is the permission of seeing you once more, and perhaps for the last time. If you consider that the request comes from a woman you once flattered into a belief of her being the sole possessor of your love, you may not perhaps think it unreasonable. Recollect, however, Errington, ere you send a refusal, that the roaring of the tempest and the lightnings from the heaven are not more terrible than the rage and vengeance of a disappointed woman. Hitherto you can only answer for the weakness and frailty of my nature. There is a further knowledge of my disposition you must have if you do not grant me the favour demanded. I wish it to come voluntarily from yourself, or else I will force it from you. Believe me, in that case I would seek you in the farthest corner of the globe, rush into your presence, and with the same rapture that nerved the arm of Charlotte Corday when she assassinated the monster Marat, would I put an end to the existence of a man who is the author of all the agonies and care that at present oppress the heart of Anne Broderick. P.S. This comes by William, the servant you have discarded on my account, who has orders to wait for your answer. Her request being refused, she persisted by letters to endeavour to induce Mr. Errington to permit her once more to see him, but finding him inexorable, she wrote to him that if nothing could induce him to do her an act of justice, he must prepare himself for the fatal alternative, as she was determined that he should not long survive his infidelity. To this, as well as to the rest of her letters, Mr. Errington preserved a strict silence, and in about a month after Miss Broderick carried out her dreadful resolution. On Friday morning, the 15th of May, she dressed herself elegantly, and going to the Three Nuns Inn, Whitechapel, she took her place in the South End coach, which passed close to Mr. Errington's seat. Having descended at the avenue gate, she went towards the house. But being seen by Mr. Errington, he begged Mrs. Errington to retire for a few minutes, saying that his tormentor was coming, 
but that he would soon get rid of her. The latter, however, desired him to leave the interview to her management, and desiring her husband to go into the drawing-room, she awaited the arrival of Miss Broderick in the parlour. In the meantime, the latter had entered the house by the kitchen, and having learned from the footman that Mr. Errington was at home, she was proceeding up the stairs, attended by the gardener, when she met Mrs. Errington. She demanded to see Mr. Errington, and was told that he was not to be seen, but saying, I am not to be so satisfied, I know the ways of this house too well, and will search for him. She rushed up the stairs into the drawing-room. She there found the object of her inquiry, and going up to him, she suddenly drew from her pocket a small brass-barrelled pistol, with a new hagged flint, and presenting it to his left side in a direction towards his heart, exclaimed, "'Errington, I am come to perform my dreadful promise,' and she immediately fired. Mrs. Errington, who had followed her, fainted, but Miss Broderick, observing that Mr. Errington did not fall, she said that she feared she had not dispatched him. Mr. Errington demanded to know how he had deserved such treatment at her hands, but she made no answer, and the servants, alarmed by the report of the pistol, then coming into the room, she threw the pistol on the carpet, and exclaimed, laughing, "'Here, take me, hang me, do what you like with me, I do not care now.' Mr. Miller, a surgeon, soon after attended, and found that the ball had penetrated the lowest rib, had cut three ribs asunder, and then passed round the back, and lodged under the shoulder-bone, from whence every effort was made to extract it, but in vain. Mr. Button, a magistrate, now came, who took the examination of Mr. Errington after his wound was dressed. He asked Miss Broderick what could induce her to commit such an act of extreme violence, and her answer was that she was determined that neither Mr. Errington nor herself should long outlive her lost peace of mind. Mr. Errington entreated the magistrate not to detain her in custody, but let her depart, as he was sure he should do well. But this request Miss Broderick refused to accept, and the magistrate to grant. Her commitment being made out, she was conveyed that evening to Chelmsford Jail, where she remained tolerably composed till she heard of Mr. Errington's death, when she burst into a flood of tears, and lamented bitterly that she had been its cause. The coroner's inquest sat on the body on Tuesday, the 19th of May, and brought in their verdict, willful murder by the hands of Anne Broderick. Mr. Errington was in the thirty-ninth year of his age. Friday, the 17th of July, was fixed for the trial of the prisoner, and at six o'clock in the morning the prisoner was conveyed from the jail in a chaise to a room in the Shire Hall, and about ten minutes before the Lord Chief Baron Macdonald, the sheriffs, and the magistrates appeared on the bench, she was conveyed into the bail-dock in the criminal court, attended by three ladies, and her apothecary. She was dressed in mourning, without powder, and after the first perturbations were over, occasioned by the concourse of surrounding spectators, she sat down on a chair prepared for her, and was tolerably composed, except at intervals, when she discovered violent agitations as her mind became affected by various objects and circumstances. When the indictment was reading, she paid a marked attention to it, and on the words, that on the right breast of the said G. Errington, she did willfully and feloniously inflict one mortal wound, etc., she exclaimed, "Oh my great God!" and burst into a torrent of tears. The facts above stated having been proved in evidence, the prisoner's counsel proceeded to call witnesses in support of her defence, who all joined in stating that they had known her repeatedly to exhibit symptoms of insanity. 
The defence was not traversed by the counsel on the other side, and the jury, after a few minutes' consideration, returned a verdict of not guilty. The judges, on leaving the town, after the assizes were over, directed that Miss Broderick should be examined before two magistrates, that she might be safely removed under their order to the place of her settlement with a particular recommendation annexed thereto, that she might be taken all possible care of. End of part 46